Welcome to the Deep End Beyond Deck, a podcast where visionary builders, creators, and experts discuss world-changing ideas. I'm your host, Marshall Kosloff. Let's dive in. The Deep End, we're creating space where we skip the surface level and go in-depth into ideas that matter. I'll be your guide as we explore possible futures of commerce, higher education, art, governance, longevity, and more with some of the most exciting figures in their respective fields. Joining me in the deep end is Celine Haliwa, founder and CEO of Loyal, a startup that is developing drugs to extend dog lifespans. Humans have been fascinated with the idea of immortality since well before written language. And even the earliest surviving piece of literature, the Epic of Gilgamesh, is partly about a king's quest for eternal life. Indeed, immortality has often been viewed as a dream for the rich, but Selene believes that it's time for all of us to move beyond this tidy narrative. In her telling, longevity is about giving everyone longer, healthier years. She likes to say that it's preventive medicine by a different name. The Loyal's immediate project is Longevity for Dogs. Selene's long-term goal is to build the SpaceX of aging and to make the goal of extending human lifespan as prominent in the public mind as the prospect of interplanetary travel. The incredible potential of what Selene is doing is starting to gain more recognition. Just recently, Ashley Vance, the author of Elon Musk's biography, profiled Selene in Bloomberg. You could find the link in the show notes. Selene was in the second cohort of the On Deck Founder Fellowship and recently announced an $11 million raise one of the largest seed rounds ever for a female solo founder. As you'll hear, Selene does things differently, which may just be necessary to take on something as monumental as life extension. If she succeeds, we'll get to spend more years with the dogs we love, and hopefully more time with the humans we love as well. The Deep End is produced by On Deck, where top talent goes to accelerate their ideas and careers. We hope that those who listen to the ideas on the show are inspired to build. To learn more about On Deck's programs, visit beyonddeck.com. For show notes and additional resources related to the deep end, check out ideas.beyonddeck.com. All right, let's dive in. Celine Haliwa, welcome to the deep end. Thanks. It's great to be here. You've written that the basic thesis within the aging field is that we can increase health span and lifespan by developing medicines that specifically treat the way our bodies age. Can you just explain what you mean by that? Yeah. So the way we think about uh, diseases today is pretty binary. Uh, so you're healthy, healthy, healthy. And then one day a doctor diagnoses you with something and then you're sick, 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 right? And then maybe there's a drug to help you and you come healthy again. But more often than not, and especially for age-related diseases, there isn't an effective treatment. So you just stay sick um, for the rest of your life. But that's actually uh, completely inaccurate to how age-related diseases at least develop. Um, age-related diseases fundamentally develop over time. Um, so the example I always use and my PR agency absolutely hates is that when I was you know, 20 in college, I could you know, drink all night with my friends, go party, wake up the next day, not have a hangover, not be tired and just like go to class, right? Today, if I try that, I have a hangover for three days, I'm in pain, can't work for the first day. And there's something like specifically wrong with me, right? I'm not sick. I don't have like a liver metabolism disorder or something, right? But like fundamentally, some aspect of my body has aged where um, alcohol, which is fundamentally a toxin, 
Um, I could recover it from very quickly when I was young and I can't today. And it's only going to get worse, right? Talk to somebody in their forties after drinking, they're very unhappy. Um, and that's kind of um, one way to think about the aging thesis. So instead of declaring a disease as you have an acute disorder, instead trying to think about diseases as you have a deviation from optimal biological function and you want to treat that deviation from optimal biological function to keep the person at optimal state or within some confidence interval, the optimum state for as long as possible. Um, and the reason why this is really excited for aging is because a lot of aging disorders are degenerative, right? So if you lose, you know, knee cartilage and your knee kind of always hurts forever until you get it replaced, right? You have Parkinson's or Alzheimer's, you're losing uh, neuronal mass in your, your brain and it, you really can't, it was current technology, get that back. You develop an age-related cancer, it's kind of like whack-a-mole for the rest of your life, depending on a type of cancer. So really what we wanna actually do, um, we obviously wanna develop acute therapeutics because there will always be people who suffer from these diseases acutely, but the thesis of the aging field, or at least the way I think about it, is can we develop drugs that treat the, the deviation from ideal biological function that it occurs over the decades before you're actually diagnosed with the disease that then leads to you developing that disease when you're you know, 60, 70, or 80. Um, another way to think about it is like statin for every age-related disease, preventative medicine for every age-related disease, a vaccine for aging, death different mechanistically, obviously, but like the same like concept. Um, and yeah, that's what I'm working on. It's what the, uh, a lot of the field is working on. It's something that I think would really help human health if we could get there. I'm really fascinated by what drew you to identify aging as a problem, because even the way you introduced it, despite the PR agency's unhappiness, <laughs> I would look at the problem of our inability to drink the way we did when we, were t as we, when we were 20 as just a fact of life. That's something that happens. That's not necessarily a problem. Yeah. What within this framework drew you to the field then? Yeah. So it was, um, I'm not, I didn't come into it with like the immortality or the lifespan extension or even like longevity framing. Um, and that's never really been my framing of the problem. I actually got into it because I was working on Parkinson's. Um, I had gotten a fellowship, uh, Sanford Vernon Preppies, which is a really beautiful lab in La Jolla and with, had always wanted to work on this disease. And kind of the conclusion I came to after being there was that, wow, this is a really hard biological problem to once somebody, so in a Parkinson's people lose a certain subtype of neuron, it just uh, atrophies and dies over time. And the neurons you're born with, generally speaking, are the ones that you have for the rest of your life. Um, and they're very intricately winded, right? So the neurons like interact with other neurons, right? And they interact with multiple other neurons. So even if you can like theoretically replace the cells that are lost, it is an incredibly difficult problem to rewire where those neurons were supposed to go because all that wiring happens when you're a fetus. Right. And so like eventually, I'm sure we will solve this problem eventually, but it's a very hard one. And I just kind of while working there, I was like, this is super frustrating, <laughs> honestly. Like, I just don't I, do, I don't even know how to like begin to tackle this problem. Why aren't we doing preventative medicine? So then I was trying to understand how you would basically have a preventative medicine um, for this drug, for this disease. Uh, and that was how I learned about the aging thesis honestly. And I thought it was uh, kind of psycho for uh, actually like for two years, I thought it was totally psycho, mostly because all I ever had heard from the aging field was that we're going to have people live to a thousand and, you know, like all the social consequences of having rich people live to 150 and poor people living to 60 and like all this BS that like I later learned is like cart way before the horse. Also just like kind of inflammatory people. 
Um, and was it actually the fun, what the scientists were actually working on, which was fundamentally preventive medicine by a different name. Um, so yeah, it just made more sense. What's really interesting, and we'll get into a bit of how the framing on immortality has been counterproductive, but as I'm just thinking about this, it seems like from a funding and an interest perspective, though, the immortality aspect or objective is kind of like clickbait, and that definitely interests people. So how do you think about the counterproductive nature of it, to your point, the BSE part, but also, hey, like that's what gets things on Time Magazine. That's how I was first yeah. introduced to this topic you know, over a decade ago. How, would, how do you think about that? Yeah, so I think there was, uh, to be clear, like I have a lot of respect for the people who like promoted those narratives because without them, I don't think aging, I never would have heard of aging and aging would have never like made it to the forefront. So I totally agree, like to kind of blow past the noise, you have to be the loudest in the room sometimes. I think the thing is now it's like, now it's time to transition. Like it has blown past the noise. <laughs> like we have a billion dollar like aging conglomerate funded by Google. Like aging is mainstream enough. The next step, in my opinion, and like how I think about this problem at Loyal, is strategic conservatism, right? Like how do we make aging look like anything else so we can actually get a damn drug approved and actually start helping patients and also start learning things that you can only learn when you're doing this work in people. Like we, we have, we always will need basic science research and there's a huge amounts of value there, but we've been stuck in like basic science forever in aging. And we really need to get into translational aging. And again, the translational aging is a totally different ballgame. That is regulation. That is like clinical ops. That's big pharma. And these guys are conservative. Um, and even if they're interested in the problem, they honestly don't want the PR risk, right? So it's really like, you just have to, like, I think there's sometimes like the straight path isn't always the most efficient and effective path to getting what you wanted and actually like going backwards and like framing it in the context of preventative medicine and statins, things that people already understand, I think is actually the way to go further, faster uh, and more effectively. And I just want to actually define this because it's really helpful within this immortality versus aging construct. What actually is your objective within the field? So it's it's not humans live to a thousand years, though in a variety of ways that could be ideal. What is it? So do you want me to be able to live to 100 without degenerative diseases, without Parkinson's. Can you just define for the audience yeah. what your ideal world looks like then? Yeah, well, so I guess first there's an interesting problem here, right? When, which like, kind of goes into semantics, which is like, what do you define as lifespan extension? Because like theoretically, if you developed a cure for Parkinson's, a cure for cancer, a cure for let's say like stroke and what are the other leading causes of death? Something like respiratory tract infection is a big one actually. If you develop a cure for all of those, the average life expectancy in the US would go up significantly, but that wouldn't necessarily be an aging drug, right? Uh, but that is lifespan extension. So the, the, the semantics here get a little bit confusing, but the TLDR of what I'm trying to do is I wanna develop drugs that slow, um, delay the aging process over time. So you basically drag out the middle healthy years of a human's lifespan and then delay or dampen the onset of age-related diseases um, that would occur in that patient otherwise over time. The ideal obviously would be like a compression mortality. So people live, I don't know, 10 to 20%, don't hold me to this number, like longer, and then they decline faster and die quicker. Um, and not basically so what you don't want to have is like 20 years where the person's in a nursing home, having a terrible quality of life, um, you know, costing insane amounts of money to their family. And, you know, it just like, you don't want that. Like, that's what you're trying to condense and delay as much as possible. 
that's my aim. The first thing that came to mind when you're describing all this is Dr. Zeke Emanuel, who is actually my neighbor back in D.C., so the world is very small. He played. He's the brother of President Obama's uh, chief of staff. He, then mayor of Chicago, he wrote this article back in 2014 at the Atlantic, which said like, "Why I want to live to only be 75 years old," citing a lot of the re- as a doctor, citing a lot of the reasons yeah. was described, which is after 75, you have all these degenerative diseases, you have this experience. How would how would you really define the post 75? experience for a lot even a lot of even upper middle class folks so this isn't just a pure question of of poverty and medical disparity no i mean these diseases impact everybody i think honestly the reason why we have a lot of high net worth interest in uh aging drugs is like they realize that being a billionaire does not prevent you from getting and dying from you know parkinson's or alzheimer's there's nothing anybody can do for you um and that's actually a very scary premise in general, that there's things that can happen to you that nobody can help you if they happen to you. Um, Or at least that scares me a lot. It feels like a lack of free will. Um, But yeah, no, I mean, it depends on the age and the genetics and experiences and the environment of individuals. But on average, I think the reason why people fear um, the elderly years is because you kind of lose yourself. Like cognition is something I'm very interested in in general. We're going to look at developing a cognition drug at Loyal. And part of the reason why is because, I mean, especially for people who like, you know, work in um, industries like this, like the idea of like losing and forgetting who you are, forgetting your family, forgetting, um, you know, just like your your brain is the your interpretation of the world and for your brain to atrophy uh, and slow is terrifying. And again, there's not really much we can do about that right now. So that's a big one, right? Like people lose cognitive function. They also are in pain every day often, right? Like their knees will hurt, their back will hurt. You tire a lot faster. So you're not going to be able to like walk that much anymore. In general, have to like sleep more. And then of course there's diseases, which are terrible. Like having a degenerative disorder or cancer or something like that is an absolutely terrible, you know, existentially like uh, agonizing experience because you know what's coming for you. Uh, Like I've always like getting a diagnosis or something like that and knowing that you're done in, you know, five to 15 years, depending on the disease is horrible. That's what a lot of elderly people have to deal with. So yeah, it's not, uh, it's not great. <laughs> so I want to pivot before we get to loyal to the actual science. And I think it's really important to go into these details because I think for me researching this show, learning all of your background in this space is what helped me just translate from the discussion of immortality, which seems like that's a hundred, 200 years forward in the future discussion versus mm-hmm. this 10 year time frame that you're focused on. So you've pointed out that there's actually been a lot of significant research in organisms such as mice that demonstrate that there is actual science that can reduce aging yeah. using various drugs. What exactly do these drugs do? I think that's the part that I don't really understand. Well, it depends a lot. Um, so for context, there's, and Laura Deming has a fantastic um, blog post on her website that goes through, at least at the point at which you've read it, written it, um, all the drugs that have shown lifespan extension or health span extension in mice. But basically there's a lot of drugs, um, everything from C. elegans, which are worms to mice and sometimes primates that have showed pretty significant lifespan and health span extension. And there's a ton of different mechanisms. So two broad ones, or maybe let's say three broad ones. One is damage mediated um, aging. So as you get older over time, you just have 
damage from your cells replicating. So like DNA damage would be a canonical one, you know, UV external damage, smoking damage, and DNA damage can lead to proteins being messed up. So your DNA is transcribed into proteins. And if the, the DNA is damaged, the protein either like won't function or might not function as well, or it might be a cancerous protein that's like, or if it's overexpressed, you know, it can be mutagenic and then cause all these issues. So that's one path. I actually don't work on damaged pathways that much because they're really heterogeneous. Um, you have a lot of, it just depends on the individuals, the environmental mm -hmm. factors, which makes, um, it's still a very like viable thing to work on. I just, I think one of the adva advantages of dogs is the inbreeding and kind of some of the genetically validated targets you can get there. So that's like kind of one category, right? And that really can go across everything. But let's just say like DNA and like DNA vitality is like maybe the core of that. Then there's a lot of pathways. And I, uh, one thing you could say is that all drugs uh, lead to mTOR is basically metabolic fitness. So, you know, your metabolism is like basically like the, the rate and like energy creation in your body. And a lot of drugs seem to converge on metabolic fitness pathways. And this makes sense because uh, caloric restriction, I believe it was one of the first interventions ever to show lifespan extension in like the 1920s or 30s in rats. They like calorically restricted rats and showed they live longer. And this is basically conserved across all model organisms, including dogs, actually if you calorically restrict dogs or one study calorically restrict Labradors and showed a two-year lifespan extension, delays of cancer, delays of osteoarthritis. And it's basically, it's kind of like a subtype of an evolutionary mechanism. It's basically like a starvation phenotype can, in the less technical way to say it, basically like slow the like rate at which an organism ages. It's kind of the way I would say that um, without like getting into it. And then the third is uh, of which metabolic fitness is a subtype of, is just evolutionary mechanisms of aging. Um, so there's this concept called antagonistic pleiotropy. So as I'm sure you know, evolution actually really only, like it only holds its hand from birth to your progeny surviving basically, right? Because the goal of evolution is to have, you know, the fittest species, fittest individual that, you know, their genetic information keeps on going over time. Right, so it's really um, optimizing for things that allow that individual to be born, to survive, to have progeny and not progeny to replicate. And what that means is it's not really tuned. Um, and there's a couple of like caveats here. So uh, please, somebody don't like nuance, kill me here. Um, but generally speaking, it's not tuned for what happens to this organism after it's had progeny. Uh, so there's this concept called antagonistic pleiotropy where basically the things that uh, evolution would have selected for, so things that you know make the organism live longer or, or uh, be more high probability of having a child and a child surviving, might actually have negative effects on the organism later in life, but there's no selective pressure against that. So basically like evolution doesn't know that there's this negative effect of it. So cellular senescence, which is something that people are like, quite interested in, is basically this idea that like cells like turn into like zombie cells over time. And this is actually a cancer defense mechanism, which is why it would have been selected for an evolution, right? So like meant that the organism didn't develop cancer every time they like got a sunburn. But when the organism is older, these cells actually build up and have shown in some studies to have a pro-aging phenotype. So basically the increased amount of um, senescent cells in a body is strongly correlated with increased aging. If you get rid of them, the organism lives longer and looks younger, et cetera, right? So those are really interesting ones because those tend to be conserved. Um, so you, there's a lot of like mechanisms like that that you see from you no know, worms to humans. Um, correlation in humans, often causation in worms and mice and Drosophila and all of those things. So what's interesting then is it seems like the focus then and probably the hampering here, because you've pointed out this is 
been pretty clear for over a decade, is translating these innovations, these, this research, these developments onto the human side. And there's actually been some very specific barriers that you outlined in your piece, which we'll link to in the show notes, of course. Regulatory, societal, structural, cultural. It would be great if you could actually go through each of those categories because that's the regulatory one seems pretty obvious to me, but, but let's just start there. What, what have been the regulatory factors that have hampered translating that advice? Because as I'm thinking about this, and we'll get into this a bit later when we're talking about business and, fund, and funding models, this is the biggest problem there is, death. Um, if <laughs> yeah. you think about it, right, the, the, the total addressable market is 7.8 billion people. Everyone experiences this. There's a deep societal cultural fear around this topic. Why is there a regulatory barrier when it comes to addressing this thing? Let's get into reg. I first want to explain um, the tool by which you can do anything in a human. So a lot of these studies, the way they work is they'll take a model organism, they'll modify it genetically to like knock in a protein, knock out a protein, you know, mess with a pathway, whatever it is. Um, so a lot of like the longevity mice are this way, right? And then they'll um, have the, pro- the the organism be born and see what happens basically, right? So like the first like single gene that was shown to extend lifespan um, was an IGF-1 homologue in C. elegans. And they basically just like knocked out a bunch of things until they found something that worked um, and then kept on going. You can't do that in people. I mean, uh, maybe if you're doing like uh, in embryo uh, CRISPR or whatever, but you know, we not going there. Um, that's, a, that's a whole nother podcast in 10. You have to develop a drug that has an effect without having bad side effects to mm-hmm. mimic whatever you need to occur. And that in and of itself is a super, super, super challenging problem. But it's not just like how we do it. It's also how do you find the best tool? So it's not like, no, it's not just what to do. It's like, it's how process. do you do it? Like the tool, yeah. the process, right? And then showing that it works and all of these things. And so that's that's something to consider that like why you can show that something is like validated in mice and there's still like a really long, really long <laughs> path to having like something that works in people. Um, it's really hard to develop a drug. Yeah. <laughs> which which is interesting because when we're looking at the regulatory side, I'm curious, and if you don't have thoughts, we could just move on. But when it comes to what you're doing at Loyal and the things you're writing about, you tend to, you've designed a process in a company that's working within that structure. Mm-hmm. Looking at that structure, though, do you have any critiques or suggestions around that structure that would make it actually more effective? Because so separating yourself from your, you know, founder perspective, I'm just yeah. curious, looking at the system. I have a lot of thoughts on reg. Um, I kind of see what I'm doing is like reg hack, not in the way of like trying to get around reg. Like we are working very closely with the FDA on <laughs> to everything. Be clear. <laughs> <laughs> to be clear, <laughs> we're not doing supplements. Like these are our active drugs. If they get approved, they'll be FDA, like all of that. But it's a reg hack insofar that it fits into the current structure in a way that like a lifespan extension drug for humans, like may or may not, depending on who you ask, but like it's kind of challenging. Um, I think what a lot of people, a lot of people have this like really simplistic view, which is like, the FDA is evil and they won't let us do aging drugs and we'd have aging drugs tomorrow if the FDA wasn't evil. And it's like, that's not true, right? Like you just need to like consider like what are the incentives and considerations of this go- governing body? And it's not like, think about it. Like if they got a drug approved for me or you today, right? And the drug is supposed to like keep us healthier longer and you know prevent a disease that we may or may not get in 50, 60 years from now. That is a hugely risky proposition 
for <laughs> the federal agency that whose job it is to protect us from dangerous, you know, drugs and protect us from adverse harm from drugs. Because the like the safety profile on that drug would have to be so high, like an adverse event that killed or maimed you, <laughs> um, a, you know, a healthy individual who had no disease, then yeah, you'll never develop that disease because you're dead from this drug and the drug hurt you, right? And it's, it's difficult to not have some sort of toxicity or adverse event profile with a drug. And if you multiply that over time, if you multiply that across all the other drugs that this person might take over time, you can't run a study that complex, right? Like what if the drug that gets approved for aging has an interaction with like, I don't know, some of the drug cocktail that you give to somebody when they're gonna have IVF. You're not gonna see that in your clinical trial because your clinical trial is not gonna follow people for 50 years, presumably. But it's going to happen to that person, and all of a sudden, this person is going to, like, you know, be maimed by this drug. And fundamentally, like, what is the FDA going to say? Like, the FDA is not on the hook, really, for like somebody dying of a disease that already exists in the population. But they are very much on the hook <laughs> if somebody dies from an adverse event from a drug that they approved. It's just a, it's like a risk reward profile, really. Um, and that's that's why you can get drugs that are for terminal indications that have terrible safety profiles and terrible adverse event profiles, you can get them approved like if they're somewhat efficacious, like relatively easily, because then like the risk reward profile is very obvious, right? Yeah. It's yeah. Okay. This person is definitely going to die in six months from ovarian cancer. So yeah, we'll take them losing their hair. We'll take them, you know, puking every day. We'll take them, you know, all these things to give them another six months and the patient's okay with that too. But like clearly that tolerance for adverse events goes down very sharply. That's Aging why, like, is at the complete opposite. And at some point yeah. in the next 50 to 75 years, I, Marshall Kozlov, will die isn't quite at the same end as six months, obviously. It's basically – that's why I was using the vaccine metaphor um, earlier because, like, mechanistically, it's not that, right? But from a safety standpoint, it is that. I mean, look, like, people are freaking out because, like, I don't know, le less than a few hundred people had blood clot – like, this very rare, like, blood clot side effect from the AstraZeneca – a vaccine and barely anybody is taking it in Europe <laughs> now, um, especially younger people. And this is for an acute infectious disease that is kill still killing thousands and thousands of people per day, right? And we don't have that acute pressure for aging. So that's really thing to think about. Um, my other like controversial opinion is that the FDA should be way better funded than it is right now you should be able to have like way more interactions than you can. Like they're, they're just like, they're resource constrained, they're bandwidth constrained. Uh, and it's like ridiculous to me that we would let literally anything, but like science, you know, drug dev get in the way of having a treatment for a disease if something like is like potentially efficacious, but it's not their fault, right? Like they just aren't well funded. Like the FDA has to like give you fees to pharma companies because they don't have enough federal government funding. So I think actually, like, if you could, like, so for example, like when we submit something to the FDA, it uh, can have anywhere from like a no to more often like 100 to 180 day like return period mm -hmm. um, to get an opinion on that. And again, like, it's not their fault. <laughs> they just don't have enough people. But like, imagine if you like 4X the number of staffers, right? Like if you cut that, like 50% of our timeline is just like wait periods. Uh, and it just seems like the relative amount of benefit to money like the, it, it just doesn't make sense to me. I, I think it gets like caught up in political things because people see funding the FDA as like strengthening the federal, federal government when actually I think it would really support industry a lot more if you better funded the FDA.
Yeah, it's so interesting because, and I like the way you described the complexity of the system because I think a lot of people would see funding the FDA as increasing burdens, increasing bureaucracy, but you just illustrated through your own experience and that in many ways it's the lack of efficacy that actually leads to the burdens in those part of it. So summing up all of this, because I think it's really important background and I'm just going to keep citing the really great things you've written. I'm going to seriously put so many different um, <laughs> versions of your posts in the show notes here because they're so useful. You've really summed up working in a lab, being in venture, starting a company as finding ways to accelerate the actual approval of some type of drug, which then seems to me then to pivot directly to your strategy at Loyal, starting with and maybe focusing and just like focusing on dogs. So it'd be great to just have you give the just explanation of like what Loyal is doing. We covered this in the introduction, of course, but what's your articulation of Loyal? I hope it's better than mine. And uh, (laughs) the strategy and how it connects to everything we've just been discussing. Yeah, so Loyal's developing drugs to extend dog lifespan and health span. We are very explicitly uh, developing drugs for this. And the goal is to get the first ever drug approved for lifespan extension. Um, and A, like we'll help dogs, which is fantastic, especially help very large breed dogs, which have much shorter lifespans. A lot of people love Great Danes, Bernese, Mountain Dogs. Two and German Shepherds in my family, so I very much know this. Yeah. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah, when I was like first researching the company, I was reading. Um, I, I didn't come from. I come from a animal family, but I didn't come from the pet world. I'll come from the biotech side, and so I was like, okay, this is like actually a market. And you'll see these huge forms of people who are talking about how much they love Great Danes and they love the breed, but they can't, you know, get another one because it broke their heart the last time the dog. And it's not like the dog just dies at eight, right? Like the dog is becoming aged at yeah. like five or six, and then you know passes away you know, very, very early. So, I mean, that in and of itself is a like a fantastically, you know, worthwhile problem to work on. And that is, you know, kind of priority number one is to develop better drugs for aging dogs and give people more time with their dogs. But then after that, the idea is to basically, I, I always say this and I feel like people roll their eyes, but I, I, it's the best metaphor I've come up with. Like, I really want to build the SpaceX of aging. And there's kind of two reasons I use that metaphor. One is that SpaceX has done a fantastic job of getting the average American or average individual excited about space again. And like, what a fantastic thing to have people excited about, right? (laughs) And I want to do that for aging, like or drug development, really. Like we kind of sort of are maybe getting closer with Moderna and the vaccine and whatnot. But I think most people hate pharma, hate drug development. They tie it directly to the insane price they have to pay for health insurance. And it generally just seems like a miserable thing. Like people don't dream of working in pharma, right? They, <laughs> and I really want to change that because there are evil pharmas out there. But on average, like the people who work on drugs every day and dedicate their life to building medicines are really awesome people. Um, and I think just nobody sees that. Or very few people publicly see that. So that's like one reason why I use that metaphor. And the other reason I use the metaphor is because I want to build a company that does really ambitious things and like nobody thought it was possible in aging and drug dev and whatnot, right? I don't know. I also don't like look like a normal biotech founder. So I also have to have that like antagonistic metaphor for it to make sense. What does, I mean, obvious follow-up, what does the normal bio, I have no exposure oh, to biotech. Yeah. What, do, what I have, I have a, I have a tech bro image in my head, but I don't have like a biotech no. bro vision in my head. So what does it typically look like? Yeah. So I always say that bio is kind of uh, maybe 10 to 15 years behind, maybe 20 years now behind the, the lessons of say that tech has learned. 
So a lot of biotech companies are, so East Coast, Boston is kind of the core uh, biotech funding versus Silicon Valley for tech, obviously. And it's often incubator models. So you'll have these funds that have these like, like, I don't know, tens to hundreds of like various levels of associates and scientists and ex-PhDs and whatever to like work on ideas. And there's like this triaging of ideas and sparring of ideas and internally incubate these companies, spin them out, you know, load them up with like 25 to $100 million to start, um, usually have an installed CEO that's usually like in network mm-hmm. and then run to the races. Um, sometimes they become their own like freestanding companies more often they're like build a buy plays. Um, and this is like fantastically profitable, by the way, to do this. Explain the build to buy play as a model. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So basically, um, I have really nice visualization of this somewhere. I don't know if I've shared it publicly. Pharma, so just definition. Biotech is like an early stage company that's developing a drug. They're almost always in like preclinical. So before people are clinical, which is like clinical trial status was their drug. And then pharma is... Um, or pharma is basically like freestanding established pharmaceutical companies. So like Pfizer's one, Moderna, I think it's like now been crowned one, uh, Genentech, they got acquired, but you know what I mean? Like freestanding companies that have drugs that make revenue, which is actually very rare. Most biotech companies don't ever make revenue in their life. And so the build to buy plays, basically a lot of what these big pharmas have done is kill whole swaths of their R&D teams, their early stage drug development. And instead built a really extremely good competency and running later stage clinical trials. So clinical trials, you wanna show safety and efficacy, show safety first and efficacy last. And it often takes like literally hundreds of millions of dollars to run some of these studies to show that a drug works, then get the drug approved and then you commercialize it, right? So the pharmas are really good at this. And then what they'll do is they'll buy assets or companies um, from the biotechs who usually can bring something from an idea, maybe it was spun out of a lab or whatever to like, preclinical studies, which are showing like making a drug, making a tool, um, showing that it's like safe, showing that it's like some reason to believe it would work in mice or whatever. Um, Maybe they'll bring it to like a phase one or like phase two studies to show phase one is safety, phase two is preliminary efficacy. So show some early efficacy and then it'll get bought by the pharma company and the pharma company will continue to develop it. Um, And there's usually like a, we don't need to go into bio box, but basically the way the deals are structured, it's not like a flat acquisition usually for like X amount of money. Usually it's like, if the drug continues to make it, you get more, the biotech company gets more and more money. Interesting. Um, so these yeah. exits are like smaller often than you like see in tech, um, but they're also sooner and you don't have to get like really anywhere near actually making revenue to make these exits. So this is like a really profitable model. And the other big thing was the East Coast biotechs is they own huge swaths of the company. So it just makes a ton of sense for them. The reason why I don't look like them is because again, these are usually like experienced former execs at like pharma or biotechs who have done this, you know, multiple times who build a team, you know, get it to over the line. It's kind of like the same, you know, I don't know, X hundred people. You very, very, very rarely see a mid twenties female solo founder funded by tech VCs trying to build a drug. Um, It's just like not a thing you see that often and like transparently like, i don't even bother to pitch the east coast guys because i don't think they would fund me because the terms would be different it wouldn't be as founder friendly um and i'd be worried about being replaced <laughs> if it did work versus the tech guys who like are very founder friendly and like believe in like the cold the founder or whatever so what was unique about you then i mean that's the obvious question then well i think a lot more people could do this like the reason why i write is because it's so 
goddamn hard to find this information. There's like mm-hmm. two good blogs of uh, lifestylevc.com. It's like a fantastic one. And there's a couple others that write about um, building in biotech, but it's, there's not this culture like there's in tech. Like I think I, I, I um, am too like junior to tech to like say this definitively, but just from the outside, it seems like PG and YC really kind of built this culture of sharing and giving back and writing and talking about what you're doing and helping the younger generation and da da da. You don't really have that, or at least I haven't seen it in biotech as much. Um, so I always say that like I write and even if I'm wrong, hopefully I'll like piss off some guy who like actually knows what he's talking about and then he can come and like go write his own blog post or she can come and write her own blog post and tell me I'm wrong. Right. At least we'd have people talking about it. I don't know, my like <laughs> career zag gave me enough context, but like also transparently, like I don't run CMC. I don't run R&D. I don't run all the super technical bits of building a company. I'm honestly just good. I'm really good at like vision, general context, fundraising, and then building a really good team who do have those 20, 30, whatever amount of years of experience building drugs and companies. Right. And I think that model is something like if I was leading R&D, you should be like worried and concerned and probably not invest. Uh, but my goal was like at Regeneron for like 15 years working on aging stuff. Right. And, you know, has a PhD before that, all of that, and he can run it. And I just like basically give him the opportunity and the money to build, you know, explicit aging drugs. And I think that's a model we'll see more of, but yeah, it's a little weird. (laughs) This is kind of a tangent, but I think this is actually hyper useful because I think the point that you're making is that if this is 15 and 20 years behind, this is pre YC. So there, like, like, like you said, there isn't that culture of sharing. It's not quite clear what this path is. And because you had a variety of interesting experiences, you were able to organically get there. But from a structural perspective, if we're trying to solve a problem like this, especially the bigger problems, it feels like you need to have more interactions to structures like this happen. Yep. 100%. We've been talking about the ways that you actually get to approve a drug. And you actually wrote a great post. You listed more than seven different ones. I want to just pick out two or three because we've actually hit a bunch of them so far. So props to you for uh, hitting hitting the points here. So we've discussed the buy-to-build model. Something I'm interested in is your point that we need more patient capital when it comes to funding um, startups, tech in this space. So let's start here. Could you define what the current funding problem is in this space and why having more patient capital would help address that concern when it comes to getting approved drugs out there. And to be clear, like some of the the biotech foundries are really good at like the patient model, uh, patient capital thing, but they don't invest in aging on a longevity yet. They're like a lot more conservative. But in, so in tech, like the negative of taking from this money is one, it's a lot less so people are like, oh, you want to raise like $25 million? And I'm like, yeah, that's like a pre-seed <laughs> for biotech. <laughs> but like, that's one issue. And there, there is a pretty, if you're, so it depends on the company, it depends on the tech. But I think broadly speaking for what we're doing, I think it's like generally accurate to say that there's a strong correlation between the amount of money we have and the probability of success. Because the only thing we're actually like emotionally attached to is finding a drug that extends dog lifespan or health span. We're not like emotionally attached or tech, tech attached to like a certain platform or a certain drug or a thing that we in license or whatever, right? And like, um, unless there's something like really weird going on with dogs, like dog lifespan can definitely be extended with a drug, right? So then it's really like a shots on goal times like how lucky are we times like how well do we execute? 
And right now, I think there is a false causation link seen between has an interesting point of view, their first shot on goal fails, and that net being causatively linked to that point of view being wrong. But the problem is like drugs are just, they're just hard, right? So if you have these companies that know that if their first drug doesn't work, that they're dead in the water, you're not going to have the kind of work and rigor and um, I don't know, you're just going to have drugs fail to luck. And that's just stupid, honestly, when you have a team working on a specific hypothesis. Like you should rigorously test out these hypotheses and the team should, you know, be strategic because of their capital. I'm not saying go spend, you know, what was the famous story? Was it like Dropbox about like a Chrome Panda or something? Um, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Don't go do that, right? But there should be, uh, a company should be able to test out their point of view, their hypothesis, and not worry about a false fail killing the entire thing. And, and there, as far as I can tell, like in the companies that do exist right now, none of them are well-funded enough, in my opinion. Maybe BioAge is going to be okay because they've, uh, I think, raised like over $100 million now. But none of the other ones have enough money where, in my opinion, if they just get unlucky, that they're going to be able to keep on going, uh, which is really stupid. I mean, like, I know this, right? Like, I um, pick, like, a very, as far as I can, like, de-risk as much as possible drug for our first one. Because I know if our first drug doesn't work, it's going to, like, it, just, it will be conflated with my competency, my team's competency, our hypothesis. Even though, again, our fundamental thesis, we've already come to the conclusion, is, like, almost almost entirely correct, just that dog lifespan can be extended with a drug, right? Like, I don't think there's somebody that would like fundamentally disagree with that hypothesis. Um, but we might not get to test it out if the first shot and goal we take doesn't work, which is stupid. Um, so we really need patient capital that like can invest in these teams to work on these problems and like still have all the rigor and, you know, you know expediency, but not necessarily like flip out. <laughs> the yeah. first time something goes wrong. You're raising an obvious question, which I should have just asked earlier, which is when we say dog life extension, what's the actual time from here? I think you wrote that no one's talking 80-year-old dogs. So what's actually the time? So when we say life extension for dogs, what's the actual time scale we're looking at? So I think the minimum that you would need to see for a dog owner to be compelled, and it's not just lifespan, it's lifespan and health span. Um, so quality of life. Correct. So life. it's I not, think you could, yeah. Yeah, I think from the human and the dog end, I think that's something people are concerned about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're not dragging out old decrepit dogs. That'd be very difficult. And I think you could literally only improve health span and not actually improve um, median lifespan, and it'd still be a product that people will buy. However, I think for lifespan extension for people to like really be cognizant, I think it needs to be at least a year relative to the breed average. And I will, I will decline to estimate on what I think it'll actually be uh, because I don't want to get myself in trouble. We'll run the study and find out. But um, I think a year minimum is probably um, where it needs to be. And that actually takes us to your revenue point, because I was interested in your point earlier that in traditional ventures in this space, the revenue hasn't been the concern because in many ways you're an incubator for pharma and uh, unfortunately, people who are we – we don't have a video capacity yet. You're missing um, her dog, which is very adorable. So Cameoing. <laughs> <laughs> a great cameo um, that we will someday feature with everything. But how does revenue work with your approach in yeah. this space, given that it's not – like you said earlier, the big pharma companies haven't been concerned about that part so far. So I'm curious how you think about that. Yeah. So revenue, I think, is actually really important to build and um, – ambitious companies. I was involved in this company that scaled up COVID tests last year. 
And one thing I learned from watching that process, besides um, the very weird back end of how all this stuff works, um, from like a governmental standpoint, is that when you have revenue, you can do more ambitious things. Like you really want, and I know this is really obvious people attack, but in biotech, you literally never consider revenue. You never consider not being tied to VCs. You never consider not thinking about fundraising 24 seven because there's just like no way normally for you to actually be revenue positive. Maybe you get like a pharma deal, but then you have the pharma handcuffs, right? So it's like really unavoidable. But one of the reasons I was excited about pets is because um, kind of what you're insinuating, the go-to market is still longer than like a you know an app, but it is significantly shorter, like about half the time from getting a human drug approved. Um, so that means like it's pretty reasonable that by, I don't know, it depends when we fundraise, let's say like series B stage, that we can start having revenue. And having revenue would mean, we all, A, we can invest it back, but B, that I can start being even more <laughs> audacious and ridiculous about like actually building, you know, my SpaceX for aging vision. Um, yeah, and the, sorry, the reason why this is possible in animal health, besides being sooner or not uh, human, or it's much more difficult in human, is because in human, you don't actually really sell to patients. You sell to insurance and Medicare and Medicaid and PBMs and hospital systems and doctors and all of these like middlemen play and like take chunks and there's distributors and like all these things. You don't really have that in animal pharma. Um, you have vets um, and maybe like the hospital system they're in and then you can like optionally use distributors and then you have the dog owner, right? Yeah. And that's really it. So you can build, I mean, it's still gonna be like damn hard and I like get anxiety whenever I think about the fact that I have to build a sales team in two years probably, hopefully. Uh, but you can actually as a company build out that competency and it not be a terrible experience like it would be if you were trying to do that for a, a human drug. So we are nearing our last section here, and I'm going to take a quick detour that I promise um, everyone from you as the guest to the audience will actually take us somewhere. The, the final step when it came to your how do we get to this 10-year point of the drug is you point out we need to be very interdisciplinary. And mm -hmm. a lot of folks, actually, I'd say 99.9% .9 of the audience who's listened to this episode is not directly in their, in your space. So I, I do think, though, the part of it has just like impressed me so much as an interviewer um, doing my prep and talking with you is just that you're able to pull in all these different things together. So I want to talk about a side topic that you've written about that reflects an understanding of complexity and all these other bigger things um, and maybe inspire someone who wants to pick up the torch. So you wrote this really interesting piece on the healthcare system. This isn't clickbait, but it was just a really interesting title, so I clicked on it. Um, it was, can corporations bring socialized healthcare to the US? And the reason why I think this relates to basically everything we're talking about is this idea that everything we're talking about from clinical trials to the nature of the FDA to East Coast biotech pharma versus West Coast venture it's all so tied together. So mm -hmm. I, I would just love to hear a little bit about how you think of the structure of the healthcare system in the US because that is basically yeah. that is basically <laughs> the entire focus of this that's that, I think that's the underlying part of this entire conversation the way people are treated the way people feel where they where they have access to things. So I think the thing that was so interesting here is your idea was basically can we use software to optimize the distribution of employee health benefits. And we don't need to like get too far into the actual company itself, but I, I love how you basically summed up two of the takeaways that you had were that A, like the US healthcare system is 
incredibly complex. There's always like huge problems with it. And you at a certain point underestimated that complexity and the actual amount of capital and experience necessary. And every yeah. single time throughout this conversation, capitals come up, experiences come up. What did you learn from that initial experience? You, you applied to YC to do this. How did that experience in studying such a complex system approach how you approached and even, I won't even say even more complex, but I would say adjacently yeah. complex system. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't like easy problems. Healthcare and aging drug dev. Like, <laughs> yeah. So for context, I got rejected from YC for that idea, um, which they made me fly from England twice. Um, so Michael Siebel, uh, I will not forget that you made me do that, but no, no, it was good you that they- uh, you, wrote, you, wrote, you, you were in the last stage of pre-Zoom uh, social interaction. Oh God. It was, yeah, that's right. Cause that would have been the batch. I got interrupted halfway through was COVID. Oh man, those were long flights. They, they do not buy you. Uh, <laughs> anyhow, sorry. I'm very glad I got rejected anyhow, because then I got to do this. One thing I did learn from that experience that isn't directly what you're asking, but I think is uh, really relevant is like, what are you uniquely good at building that you like have a unique insider reason why you would be a world-class founder, you know, 99th percentile founder in building this. So healthcare, I clearly was not a 99th percent founder in building this because I didn't have any background in it. It was kind of just a random idea. And like the strengths that you uh, founder in a field was basically like deal-making and sales and software building were all things that I just, even now, like, ugh, the idea of having to do any of those like makes me want to die. And it was really clearly like I was not a 99th percentile founder for that versus loyal. I, I mean, not to like toot my horn, but I think I am, right? Like it's like the animal side, the longevity side, the drug dev side, the like raising from tech VC side, the consumer side. Like it's very rare to have all those pieces in one person. I didn't have all of them, but I had like the core ones that were difficult to develop the skill sets, right? And then I developed the other ones. And that means that I'm uniquely like fitted to build this company. I'm not uniquely fitted to build like a small molecule optimization, drug development, you know, like a more traditional biotech. Like I don't think I'd be the best person in the world to build that. So I think to go back to like your audience, presumably they're not going to have aging contacts. And that's actually like fine. Like you need to build up like some competency or understanding of bio of drug dev, but you're going to uh, be better hire somebody who knows way more about that than you, or you're going to like fail. So presumably you're going to bring like some contacts that the majority of people who do have that aging drug dev context don't have. Um, so like, for example, we're building out a computational bio team at Loyal right now. And uh, we hired this really awesome guy, Tom Roseberry. I like, I honestly, like, I can't say that I even have, like, <laughs> they asked me like, so what do you want to have happen with this team? I was like, honestly, guys, like, I want you to tell me what you want to do with this team. Because I don't have context in like computational bio. I don't have context in ML or AI. I don't have context in any of things. I don't even know what the most like valuable you know, aspects are, but I can tell that like the team's really good and I facilitate them and kind of bounce back and forth and give them the bio context that they may not have. Right. So I think that's, what's really important is figuring out where can you, what intersection points can you bring a unique context to? Um, and presumably that's going to be the skills that these people have developed in their current career so that they bring to drug dev. Um, a lot of bio people are really narrow because the training required is really intense. I mean, if you act here like a properly trained scientist, you spend four year undergrad, you work in the lab the entire time, you probably do a three to seven year PhD and you probably did a couple year postdoc. 
Uh, but maybe you develop like some other skill sets on the side, but it's really like traditionally trained biologists. It's quite narrow and it's usually in like one aspect of biology, which I think just makes, uh, yeah, there, that's why there's a lot of interesting opportunity for these kind of collaborations to occur. That's, that's, in, that's incredibly helpful. So big picture nearing last question here is basically to your point, you didn't have quite the skill set for niche healthcare space. But when it came to addressing something big and aggressive like this, you had those skill sets. How would you advise people go about developing those skill sets? Because I think the part that got people so excited, at least me personally, um, I was really inspired by Mark Andreessen's time to build essay last year. So yeah. it was time to build a podcast. So not quite the same scale. <laughs> kid, mostly kidding there. But your voice think, is so good. Thank you. Um, but basically, there's so many people that I feel as if they see problems, like they see aging, they see something maybe in the healthcare system, maybe there is someone who has that background. How do you advise people go about developing that skill set? Honestly, like this is going to be a, I don't know how reassuring of an answer of it is, but it's just like a ton of work. Like you just have to dig really deep. Like I spent a year and a half, like the fundamental biology behind our first drug, I like literally wrote like an 80 page memo on it. And I read every paper there was, this is for bio, right? But like, I just read everything. Very few people actually go very deep on very many things. They like read a few blog posts or whatever. Like if you can go insanely deep, if you can like talk to the people who've worked on the problem, talking to people who wrote the papers that you're reading or wrote the blog posts that you're reading or whatever it is, and just do that on a problem, you'll find something eventually, right? And it's, it indubitably will not be what you like intended to find, like, I did not start this process. I didn't, I didn't think I was going to start a company. I actually didn't want to leave biotech venture. Probably not even dogs either. <laughs> company, <laughs> oh, yeah. dogs, everything. <laughs> I was embarrassed to say dog longevity for a very long time because it was such a like, weird <laughs> concept. Interesting. Um, I'm guessing this is before the Bloomberg piece. When did that transition to no longer embarrassing? I think probably. So for context, like I started talking about the idea probably in like June of 2019 we got a term sheet and then I was like, got a term sheet in October, 2019, still felt uncomfortable all of that time saying dog longevity, January, 2020, I started running and building a team still felt uncomfortable. I probably like felt okay. Like March, 2020, like I didn't feel weird March, 2020, by the way, I think that's like the biggest anti-pattern I have that like, I try to reassure people. Cause I think a lot of people have this, it is totally chill. If you're not a hundred percent sure, if you want to build a company, like I was honestly not a hundred percent sure until I got the term sheet. And then I was like, well, I guess I'm doing this. And it wasn't because I wasn't like committed. It was just because I was committed to the problem. I wasn't necessarily committed to the tool by which I tackled the problem. And if, there, if I thought there was a better tool to tackle the problem, I probably would have worked on that instead. That's why I wanted to stay in venture for a long time. I thought that was the best tool. But again, I was not uniquely good at that because there was like certain skill sets around venture that like I just didn't really have. Um, so that's okay. Like, I think it's actually like a positive signal. It's like you're super mission motivated by whatever the problem is and not attached to like becoming a founder. I think that's like usually becoming attached to being a founder is like a negative thing. I like your self-awareness on like what you bring to the table, and what you don't bring to the table. And I'm realizing there's a version of you that maybe thought, Hey, maybe I need a co-founder who is a biotech exec, this, this, and that. How, how did you think about the process of supplementing yourself, not supplementing yourself? I, you're a solo founder, correct? Mm-hmm. So how do you, how do you think about that? Especially given the space, because what I think is so fascinating is in your, as you said, in your space specifically, there, I think there could be a very easy articulation for why you needed someone of your aggressive vision to be supplemented with 
a pharma exec or a, you know, uh, you know, of some PhD who spent 30 years in a research lab? Like, how do you think about that? Yeah, I think there's two things, right? So there's skill set and personality. So I definitely lack a lot of the skill sets to like actually execute, or I, I have, you know, 20% depth on them, right? Like I can talk candidly about like CMC and product development. I can't like physically design the product and make a decision on like, you know, excipient A or excipient B and then like this analytic method. Like I've, that's, you know, decades of experience that's required, right? So I think that A was like just being cognizant of that and then being having a superpower, which was like hiring and, you know, convincing people to be excited about this. So I didn't like very clearly and quickly hired people for these core competencies that were necessary to do this and had like zero ego attached to um, uh, delegating, you know, core aspects of the company out. Like I fundamentally trust my exec team and like Michael leads the science. Like I don't mess with Michael. Like I ask him questions, obviously and we like, you know, go back and forth, but fundamentally it's all like he could kill a drug tomorrow and it's his decision, right? It's not mine because he has way more scientific context than I do. And so that's, that's like a, a thing where like, I think you can actually, if you, then that goes into the second point, I'll make it a second personality, but like you can build out a core team. They don't have to be co-founders. And like transparently, I don't know if like the ones like people I hired like, would want to be co-founders in a lot of bio, like they have families, they have kids, they have college funds. They don't want to pick like no salary for like equity. That's like ephemeral, right? Like there's like, it's just like a different, different, you know, it's different, right? <laughs> they are not been fantasizing about starting companies for 20 years. Like, you know, like the 21 year old tech guys who come in, right? The second thing is personality. I think it's like fundamentally the reason to actually have co-founders or not, which is like, can you handle shit on your own? Are you like emotionally, like transparently, like emotionally stable enough to not like crash when things get really difficult to like have discipline in the face of like zero um, oversight, which often can happen when you're building and it's like push through walls. And I just knew that like I did, I'd always been pretty solo operator, honestly. I've like moved every year. I've like pushed my career forward independently. And I just knew I worked better that way. And I, 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 I knew that like having a co-founder would like add more friction um, and have, would have like more negatives and positives for me personally. I'm sure if I found like the perfect person, like I would like co-found a company with like some of the people who are on the team now, right? But it just like, I didn't need it to start loyal. I honestly didn't even consider it. I don't know, I got some questions, but not that many. <laughs> yeah, that's- So yeah, course. don't be scared of not fitting the pattern. And like the pattern is 80 to 90% correct, but it's not 100%. Like there are different, people are different. <laughs> yeah, and I think that takes you back to your earlier articulation, how everything you're doing in the space doesn't fit into the traditional pattern. So if you're looking at, if there's X, Y, or Z problem, regardless of industry, if it hasn't quite been solved yet, maybe we should think about approaching with a different pattern. So final question here would be, my main layman's takeaway here is, wow, aging, longevity, dogs, it's all super complicated. There's the FDA, there's a, broken healthcare system, why should we as audience members and people who are interested in the whole idea of aging and death, well, not necessarily immortality, but just that topic, yeah, I don't yeah. want to, I'll, I'll take your, I'll take your advice from the start of the episode. Why should we be excited about this space, your company, obviously, but just in this space in general? Because once again, as we've had, like, I, I seriously saw that Time Magazine article about immortality, 15 years ago, right? And it doesn't yeah. feel as if things have shifted beyond the cover story. So why should we be excited to close things up? Well, I do fundamentally believe the first aging drug will be approved this decade. I think if you're thinking about this now, you're way, 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 way ahead of the loop. And I think there's going to be more aging companies and there are cancer companies. 
maybe not in 10 years, maybe like 15 or 20. Like if you think about it, aging is the largest drug class there probably ever will be, right? Like a large portion of cancers are derivatives of aging. They're an age-related disease often, like there's pediatric, but mostly age-related diseases. You know, neurodegenerative disorders are almost entirely caused by aging. Like I think aging is going to be, uh, you tend to get like trends in pharma. I think aging is going to be one of the big ones. And I, the reason why I think you can build a pharma here is because I think just like how Moderna is kind of cracked through is definitely like a pharma now via like its mRNA platform and it's a couple others that are managing this also. Like I think aging is going to be the next thing that does that. And I think the reason why now is it's a kind of a combination of the sciences there and there's enough legitimate people <laughs> working on it now, honestly. And I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about like, like NIA and like Google and Calico and like lots of interesting money, people, ideas going into the space that didn't exist before. Um, I think before it was, again, seen as like extreme immortality, whatever. Yeah, I mean, like one of the reasons I joined Laura is because she was one of the first people who like came to the Valley and like really talked about aging in a way to like, you know, whatever, like, you know, big tech people could get involved in it and not feel like it was a PR risk. Um, that was one of the reasons I joined her is I thought like she did a really good job of like forging that path. And, you know, now it's just like enough people have done like incremental work like this. That I think we're hitting a threshold where we will actually get a drug approved. I keep t promising you uh, last question, but you actually just bring up a question that we started asking all of our guests, which is because you brought up Laura, this came to mind. Has there really been a moment where someone in your space gave you, and it doesn't have to be Laura, but is where someone basically just gave you a, a hand up or directed you or just like helped you get on the current path you're at? It's a thousand percent Laura. Like, yeah. Like without her, like I coldly emailed her from Oxford. I totally sucked for a really, really long time. Like, I mean, this is a longer story, but I, I tell this, like my first year in Silicon Valley was like absolutely horrible. People like didn't invite me to anything. I was told I was dumb by multiple people. Like I didn't fit any of the patterns. I was like, there's so much like social stuff. Rebecca Silicon Valley like, sounds so terrible, by the way. <laughs> it's, it's true. Like there's really a way by which people communicate here that it's not a bad way of communicating, but it's like, if you don't grow up, you know, reading the same blog posts, like learning the same things, having the same vernacular, you know, like transparently, I didn't grow up with like parents that are super rich or anything, right? Like, it's just like, it's very difficult to break in. There's a language and there's like a way of signaling that like you're in the in crowd. And I didn't know that. And Laura, like bless her heart, like painfully taught me all of this for like almost two years. And that's like another reason I'm allowed about it is because not everybody gets that experience. And like, honestly, when you're busy, it's very difficult to like mentor somebody like that. And I, she, she really helped me. I also like globbed onto her. So she really had no choice, but to help me <laughs> like a giant slug or something. <laughs> yeah. I think that like, if I had not had that, it would have been really hard. And then obviously she, like was the first check in and like all of these things. And like, you know, you know, stood for me when there was like nothing there. And I appreciate like that all means a lot. It's like, yeah, it's amazing how like binary that stuff is like literally without her, I would not be working on this today. Like 30 people wouldn't have their jobs. Like it would just be totally different. I would um, have, to, so, I'd have difficulty booking a guest. It all works together. I know. Yeah. I know. Well, <laughs> uh, that's why we like are doing internship programs now and whatnot in Loyal. Cause like even if Loyal like crashes and burns and it turns out I'm terrible and all of these things, like maybe we'll catalyze like one other person. I can do that for somebody else. Um, I think it's, it's really difficult when you don't have that, have that. Hi, Wolfie. I'll do that for you. <laughs> 
it's all about ultimately this whole episode crescendos with this being about Wolfie. Well, Celine, thank everything's you. about Wolfie. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you so much. This has been this has been really great. I've actually, I'll, I'll say this, and I'll say this when I tweet about. I've I've learned more just researching and talking with you than any podcast episode I've ever done before. So uh, thank Aww. you. This is great. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for joining us in the deep end. If you enjoyed your stay, give us a review on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with your friends and colleagues to help grow the show with us. We've also got show notes and more episodes available at ideas.beyonddeck.com. See you next time.